This is what it looks like in the early hours in the Tampa Bay area as Hurricane Adalia gets closer to landfall. Storm surge is beginning to flood some roads and water is already beginning to rise up buildings in Gulfport. Adalia Earlier this week, as Hurricane Adalia made landfall, I couldn't help but think about what it was like to cover a natural disaster just a few years ago. I've been in several hurricanes and other disasters, and during those times, I'd often find myself turning to social media to get the latest news. You would be on Twitter during an event like that, refreshing constantly, seeing the latest pictures from that people are uploading from their homes, seeing the latest news reports, uh, seeing news organizations often sort of live blogging it and linking to their coverage. That's Will Oremus, a reporter at The Washington Post. Will wrote about the role that social networks have played in our modern disasters. Twitter in a disaster could turn into basically a real-time news feed. Facebook wasn't quite that rapid fire, but for ordinary people who weren't on Twitter, they would go to Facebook and see what their if their friends and family were safe. And in the process, they would look at what news was being shared from different localities and, and again, click through, read stories, find out the latest. And, and like every emergency services office would be on there, yeah? For public agencies that are trying to communicate with the public, in a disaster, social media was a double-edged sword because on social media, rumor and misinformation and speculation could spread. But at the same time, it gave them a way to quickly reach people where those people already are. You know, if, if a public agency blasts something out on Twitter, everybody who's following that storm or that disaster on Twitter it has a good chance of seeing it and seeing it right away. And that was a useful tool for them. It became part of their strategy for communicating with the public. And then information also flowed the other direction. So people from emergency services centers, from uh, public agencies, from law enforcement, would be scanning social media, Facebook and Twitter and other networks, to see what people were posting so that they could tailor their response accordingly. I mean, there might be people on the ground who are posting stuff that they don't know about yet as it happens. I mean, I have covered an, a number of disasters, and I'm now thinking about being in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And when you have, you know, the the victims of a disaster spread out, trying to get help, it's also striking that that happens on social media. People are able to communicate in that way. I just, it's hard for me to think about the disasters that I have covered um, and and think about them without the role that social media was playing. Yeah, and, and I don't think that's going to go away. I mean, people, people have really built this into their lives as social media is one of the places you go to find out the latest, find out what's happening. You could go to just a news site uh, and and keep refreshing, but no individual news organization is going to have the breadth and the speed of information that you can get on social media. But now, as social media companies turn away from news and stop investing in fighting disinformation, what you find online is less and less reliable. Today on the show, 
As climate change magnifies disasters, social media companies are dropping the ball. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. It's not that people don't go on social media in a disaster. They clearly do. But what they see there in a wildfire, a hurricane, or a flood has changed dramatically over the past few years. So on X, which used to be Twitter before Elon Musk quixotically renamed it, you no longer see blue checks next to the accounts of verified journalists. Blue checks now signify that somebody has paid Twitter, X, Elon Musk, $8 a month for that for that badge. They don't signal anything about the reliability of the information. And so a lot of journalists have left Twitter or they, or they post less frequently there. Others, it can be hard to distinguish between somebody who has checked the facts and is sort of a, a professional fact gatherer and reporter versus somebody who may be just repeating speculation versus somebody who's actually trying to actively sow disinformation or spread hoaxes. Like that shark. That shark, man, that shark is everywhere. There's always a shark. Whenever right, whenever there's flooding, you'll always see somebody will Photoshop a shark onto, you know, the New York subway during Hurricane Sandy or, I don't know, you know, Bayshore uh, Road in Tampa. Um, Some of them are pretty, should be pretty obvious, I think, to the average person that they're hoaxes, but some of them really aren't. And, And it's always a headache for emergency responders and for public agencies when people are turning to social media and getting the wrong information, getting fooled. Um, getting uh, conspiracy theories and rumors or maybe panicked when they don't have to be. When Musk took over, he gutted the teams responsible for differentiating those hoaxes from the truth. But it's not just Twitter that's turning its back on news. Now, on Facebook, if you're in the United States, your feed today doesn't look all that noticeably different than it did five years ago, let's say you will still see news sources in there, but you'll see less of them. Facebook has been linking less and less to outside media organizations. It's been prioritizing the personal posts from your your friends and family and and the pages that you follow, the groups that you're in. So the changes there are, are subtle. If, however, you are in Canada, you will see absolutely no news anymore in your Facebook feed. And that is because in response to a Canadian law, that would have required it to pay publishers for linking to their articles, Facebook has just simply banned all news links on its platform across Canada. So has Instagram. You cannot post any news to the entire network in that country anymore. What did what did that mean? Um, or what does it mean in this season of awful wildfires in Canada? Right. Well, again, it hasn't stopped people from going to Facebook to try to get information and in fact, Facebook recently had one of its arguments vindicated. There was a there was some new data out this week that suggested that banning news from Facebook in Canada has barely affected usage at all. Like people mm. are still using Facebook just as much. And Facebook said that in the first place when Canada was trying to make them pay publishers, saying, "Look, these new news organizations are adding a lot of value to your platform, but they're not getting anything out of it. You're just basically stealing their content. You should pay." Facebook said, well, actually, people don't really come to us for news. That's not where we make our money. And if you're going to force us to pay for it, 
then we'll just, you know, we'll just say, go fly a kite and we just won't do news anymore. And in fact, Canadians are still going there to get information. What they are not getting are links to actual articles. They're not getting the, the sort of like reliable, professional fact check news stories. So what they're getting is just the rumors, just the speculation, just, you know, oh, I heard this on the news or, uh, you know, Fox is reporting this, but you can't actually go to Fox and see what Fox is reporting. Well, you're, you're talking about these sort of, I guess, writ broadly, reevaluated relationships, right? Like, Meta, as you say, has been pulling away from news for some time. But before we even get to Twitter, like, what what's Meta's reasoning in doing that? Yeah, well, I mean, there was a time, if you could go back uh, uh, 10 years ago, which is like a lifetime in internet years, Mark Zuckerberg was saying that he wanted Facebook to be like, the best personalized newspaper mm-hmm. for everybody in the world. That was his vision for Facebook. And that meant trying to curate the high quality information for them, trying to keep them informed in addition to keeping them connected with their friends and family. Over the years, Facebook has has subtly and gradually but steadily backed off of that vision. I think a big turning point was 2016 with all the scandals around uh, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook being used by Russian propagandists and trolls to try to manipulate the election and the electorate. Um, And then the intense scrutiny that followed, all the stuff about fake news, um, Facebook, you know, linking to low quality news sources or or polarizing people. Facebook's response initially was, well, we'll we'll do better. We'll try to fix that. And they came up with various different sort of bolt-ons to try to, uh, to try to make sure that the news they were spreading was more likely to be real news and not, you know, fake news or, or just ideological sensationalism. Over the years, they kind of gave up on that. Um, and they were like, hey, let's, let's just, you know, let's just decide that news isn't what we do. It's not our core value. We're going to just be more about connecting people with their friends and family, sharing photos, keeping communities together, uh, but not actually being a resource for, for high quality news. The reason Will mentioned Canada is because of a law passed there, the Online News Act. It forced digital platforms to pay news publishers whenever their work is shared. The idea was to return some of the advertising revenue to the media that Facebook has gobbled up. In response, Meta blocked news articles from Canadians' feeds altogether. But the thing is, Meta has been moving away from emphasizing news for some time. So as early as 2018, the company was making changes to send less traffic to news publishers. In 2021, it said that it, it said explicitly that it would start downgrading political content in people's feeds. It just didn't want to be responsible for it. It was like too much of a headache. And then this July, when Meta, that's Facebook's parent company, launched yeah. Threads, which is its, its answer to Twitter, you know, Twitter has always been a lot about keeping people up to date on the news. Adam Masseri, who's the chief of Instagram and who who oversaw the launch of Threads, said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to lean into the news. We're not going to ban the news on Threads unless unless you're in Canada. But they, they actually haven't decided that yet, to be clear, what they're going to do with news on Threads in Canada. But they said, we're just not going to make news a priority for us. We're going to lean more into entertainment, into sports, uh, into gossip and jokes. This is not going to be a a hub for news, and it's not going to. We're not going to spend our resources trying to fact check the news or police misinformation or that kind of thing. 
When we come back, is it possible that disentangling from social media is actually good for the news industry? In, in one universe, perhaps an alternate universe, there could have been a moment where the leadership of Twitter said, OK, Meta's pulling away from this. We're going to double down on it. Uh, but that is not what happened. What did happen? Like, how would you describe the relationship between Twitter and news now? Yeah, Twitter actually was doing that to some degree in the years before Elon Musk's takeover. It had had devoted a lot of resources to trying to solidify its place as the social network you would go to if you were really plugged into the news. And it, it did that in a couple ways. One thing it did was it it had this team called the curation team. It, you remember that tr- the trending box on Twitter that tells you what's going on now? Sure. Um, that would often be filled with sort of viral hoaxes and and false info or false rumors. You know, there would be rumors that someone had died and they hadn't in fact died. Twitter hired a team of mostly former journalists to fact check that stuff and to to try to make the news that was trending actually factual and to give it context and to link to reliable news sources that were covering those trending topics. Musk, one of the first things he did was to disband that team and, and get rid of them. And Twitter had also been expending a lot of resources on on stepping up its efforts on certain types of misinformation. Uh, and Musk really, I mean, that was probably his overarching goal was he was upset with those efforts to police misinformation and hate speech. And so he pulled back hard on that. Musk has a very fractious relationship with the news media, and he has for a long time. Um, He has banned journalists from the platform for for reporting that he doesn't like. Um, He has... um, A Washington Post investigation actually a couple weeks ago found that he was that X under Musk was secretly throttling links to the New York Times and Reuters and other specific outlets that Musk has said he doesn't like. So there's like, you know, coincidence there um, that if you clicked on a link to them, it would wait, like it would like make you wait before it would open the page. Um, so Musk had been, has really abruptly pivoted X away. I wouldn't say he's, he's steered it away from being a place where people talk about the news. He has steered it away from being a place where people go to find trusted news or mainstream media sources. Uh, and, and he steered it away from relationships with the news media. I think the point you're making about relationships is is really interesting and important because it also gets to, to the, the business model of places like where you and I work. For so long, news organizations fostered those relationships with social media. We put energy into it. We put money into it. And it sort of makes me think like, oh, gosh, was that all a huge mistake? Because here we are at the whims of social media companies. Yeah. I mean, what what the social networks really did was capture the direct relationship with the user in their lingo, the the reader or listener in in our industry, they became the first stop for for many people, and not just people who are looking for news. I mean, people who are just looking to keep up with their friends would go to Facebook or other social networks and also get the news in the process. And so, as people stopped coming directly to news sites or reading the paper or tuning in on terrestrial radio, uh, they the 
social networks and tech companies really became intermediaries. And so news organizations like yours and mine felt like they had to go to where the readers and listeners were. And as you said, put a lot of resources into reaching people there. And it actually, I, I think, really profoundly shaped coverage, not always in a good way, because once you started being, once you started having it as a priority to reach people on Facebook, to reach people on Twitter, uh, then you can, you know, you can start tracking. Well, how many people are we reaching? How many are people are clicking? <laughs> what are they what clicking if we change on? the headline and just juice it up a little bit? You know, what if we do? We've noticed that people are into this kind of story a little more. I mean, these really maybe uh, opinionated political screeds get a lot more shares on Facebook and Twitter than a balanced summary of the issue. How about we do more of that? And so I think that the news media actually made itself worse in a lot of ways trying to reach people on these platforms that were never designed to be primarily about informing people they were supposed to be about entertaining people and so the the news media had to twist its coverage into that frame to reach people who are on Facebook to be entertained and i think that has had profound effects and now that those intermediaries are, are saying, hey, actually, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, it, it could be a death blow for some organizations. Well, and it also leads us to this point where in a crisis, in a natural disaster, in a scary situation, um, if you're a news organization trying to reach people, you're trying to figure out which which channels to go through. And if you're a person trying to get information let's be honest, going to a news organization's website or listening to them on, on the radio or on a podcast, it doesn't have everything in a central location like thumbing through a feed. Yeah. So, so, and that is what I think we're going to start to see more of. And we've seen it over the past several years as I think Facebook was really the first one where the, the fire hose of, of traffic, of links to news media started to turn into a trickle. And I, I wrote about that for Slate, actually, about five years ago when Slate started seeing its traffic dry up from Facebook. And so organizations that had thought that this flow of traffic from social media would just keep growing realized, hey, this actually isn't working for us. We got to find something else. And so you saw them start to pivot to subscriber programs, you know, Slate Plus, um, yeah. the, you know, the Washington Post put up a paywall. Um, uh, the New York Times put up a paywall. So they're trying to recapture that direct relationship. Um, and monetarily, it works out better. You, you know, they get more money that way. But in terms of the average person, I mean, a lot of people don't want to pay for news or they're only going to pay for one source. And so it it ends up being, you end up with a smaller, you know, more loyal paying audience, but the average person still has to go to social media, still goes to Google News to get free news from as many sources as possible. And so you have this sort of disconnect from the business model that now works for the media organizations, which requires you to pay. And this, this demand that's out there for free, instantaneous information that's a legitimate demand from the broader public. So I feel like there are two kind of what-does-it-all-mean questions. Number one is how do we reliably get accurate, actionable information to people in a crisis? And, and do tech companies with their broad reach have a role in that? I will let you tackle that one first. So for a long time there was this ethos among the big internet companies that we're not just here to make money. We're here to 
make the world a better place, right? right. Or, you know, connect people. Um, you know, we have a social mission as well. And that was what part of what, you know, whether it was ever, whether they were ever a net good for the world or not. I mean, it was, it was part of their ethos. It was part of what drew young idealistic employees to go work for them. It was part of their public image. It was part of their brand. I think in recent years, we've seen the big tech companies start to adopt a different stance. And part of that is they started to feel like it was sort of no win, like the, like they were going to get criticized no matter what they did if they were involved in media and politics. And then part of it is that there was a, a downturn in the ad market that was significant a year or two, a year or so ago uh, for online ads, which was how most social networks were making money. And they had they had to tighten their belts to keep making money and to satisfy inve investors. And so um, they, they've sort of decided, I mean, this is like sort of more of a, a vibe than like a specific policy, but they've sort of decided like, uh, maybe our first goal is just to build products that make money after all, or build products that people like, and we're not going to see ourselves as an integral public service anymore. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of resources trying to fulfill some broader social mission, at least when it comes to the news and informing people. Uh, and so I think what we're going to see in the short term is social networks are still going to be a primary hub for people to get news. And that news is just going to be worse. It's just going to be even less reliable. There's going to be even more misinformation, more hoaxes. Um, and <laughs> I, there's not a lot of upside to that in the long run you know, maybe news organizations and public agencies who are trying to reach people continue to think creatively about how can we recapture that direct relationship with the public? How can we get them to to stop going to social media first and come to us first? But I don't think they're there yet. Well, this is leading me to question number two or big question number two, right? these companies have enjoyed some aspects of being treated like quasi-utilities. They they open a lot of doors with those names and get to talk to a lot of important people. And so if they pull back on this quasi-public-spirited, certainly public-facing responsibility, then they're just regular old companies. And And I wonder if the leadership of those companies is ready for that. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I think already if you talk to the rank and file employees at the big tech firms, they're they're less idealistic than they were five years ago. A lot of them will say, "Look, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about the work I'm doing, but it's a good job, and you know, it's job security, and they they treat us well, and you know, it's just it's not the same. I don't think they're mission driven to the same degree that they used to be." I also think that it, it is true from the standpoint of those companies' leadership that they didn't get a lot of they didn't get a lot of reward for their efforts. And now you could say that's because their efforts were underwhelming. You could say it's because that always their 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 profit motive was in conflict with whatever sort of veneer of social responsibility they tried to to tack on to that. Um, but they, in fact, got punished a lot of times when they tried to say, police misinformation. I mean, there's a, there's a large faction of, of the uh, American body politic that, 
either th- that thinks that a lot of the stuff that gets labeled misinformation is actually legitimate. Um, you know, whether that's sort of anti-vaccine conspiracy theories or, you know, I don't know, QAnon stuff or, uh, you know, th- they think that it's really censorship. And and the companies were increasingly getting hauled before Congress and made to answer. And the, the, the Democrats were mad about them not doing enough to police information. The Republicans were mad about them doing too much and censoring people. So, you know, I think to some extent they're throwing up their hands. They're saying, look, this is just, this is, this is a no win for us. Let's, you know, let's be, let's be companies that give users a product they like and, you know, forget the politics stuff. Will Remus, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me, Lizzie. Will Aremis is a tech reporter at The Washington Post. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of what we're doing here, you should join Slate Plus. It is Slate's membership program, and you get all your Slate podcasts and lots of cool Slate content ad-free. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back next week with new episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 